0: Hear now the word of the Lord, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible and inerrant. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you will become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Children three to six can go to their class.
1: Good morning, uh, Clint had uh, sent me an email of, of a month or so back and basically said, um, I've preached for about four or five months in a row, <laughs> so I think I might need a Sunday off. Uh, and I was more than happy to, to give him that, um, and because uh, I know it's, it's, uh, it, it can take it a lot out of you <laughs> to do this week in and week out. So I'm um, happy to have you just sitting out there, Clint, and, and, and hopefully this will be good for your soul uh, to not have to give a sermon this week. Uh, Let me pray for us before we jump in, um, because I need the Lord's help um, if we're going to do what we intend to do here. Uh, God, we recognize that um, the words that were just read by Haley um, are your words to us, Um, and so God, I pray that your word uh, would sink down deep into our hearts. I pray um, that it would cause um, life change for us here, whether we are people who have grown up in the church and have barely missed a Sunday in our whole lives, um, or, where this is, or or whether this is one of the first times we're here in a church building, I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts and that you would transform our lives. So God, I pray that you would give me grace to explain your word here, um, and God, that your Holy Spirit would work um, and would, would do that work of, of transforming hearts and lives. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give you a, a fair warning here. When we uh, just right out of the gate, that the sermon I'm about to give is not a very 2020 sermon. Uh, this is probably not something that's that's going to be popular um, in this day and age. You know, we're we're very much in our culture today are in a place where we exclusively affirm people. Uh, we only tell them good things that they want to hear, and the worst thing in the world is really to tell someone that they're wrong or to say anything negative about them. That's just the culture that we live in today. But uh, that's not the tone that Paul used when he wrote this, wrote this whole book of Romans, but especially this section here. That's not the tone that he used. But I also believe that this is the Word of God uh, that is kind of spans time. It's not bound by time. Um, And so regardless of what culture we're in, regardless of the tone that Paul used when he wrote this, it's still applicable to us today, and I believe it's still something that God has for us today. So i am just give you that warning out of the gate. I'm also this morning going to ask you, as we're here, as we're looking at the Word together, uh, to take a long look in the mirror. This is another thing I think we don't do in this day and age. We don't take the time to just sit and slow down and examine our lives. We're just so filled with entertainment and media. It's just constantly coming at us. And even if you get bored for half a second, you can take care of that because you can pick up your phone and you can start looking at something, even if it has no meaning or purpose at all. But we can, we can fill ourselves with things so that we can avoid sitting quietly reading, hearing from the Word of God, and really examining our lives, really looking at, in the mirror at our lives. Now, I will also warn you that this mirror that we're going to look at this morning is not so much like the mirror that you have in a clothing store that has the perfect lighting and no matter what you put on, everything looks great. This is more the mirror that when you go home and you put that same thing on in your house, it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look good on you. That, that's the mirror that we're going to be looking at today, where you, you're lo- we're going to look at the text here, and I hope that if you're honest and can examine your lives, you're going to say, this doesn't really look all that good on me. I, I'm not quite who I thought I was. But I promise, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me, and I promise that if we do that, if we continue to look together um, at ourselves and go through what may be hard to grasp, um, that I think there's great joy on the other side. Um, so I ask you to, to bear with me in this. So you may be wondering, the text that was read, and even if you look back at what Clint preached on last Sunday, and even the Sunday before that, Paul continues to focus on their sin. He continues to address the sin of the church of those that are in Rome. He, do, he did it, as I mentioned, back in, starting in chapter 1. He does it here in chapter 2, and he's going to continue that in chapter 3. And, and so you may be thinking, like, why, why do you have to do that, Paul? Why, why do you have to continue to over and over again think of new ways to describe my sin? I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm sinful. I get it. And I think the reason that Paul does that is because we don't get it. Uh, I think, in fact, we're resistant to really seeing it and to really feeling it, how sinful we really are. We don't really know the depth of our sinfulness. And, I, and I, Paul believes, and I believe with him, that the more we know our sinfulness, the more we know our hopelessness before God, the more beautiful that God and the gospel will be for us. There was, I heard a story about a professor at Boston College. He was a philosophy professor, Um, And he had an assignment for his class uh, where he said, I want you to write an anonymous survey. So they didn't have to, you know, or anonymous essay. So they didn't have to write their name on it. It It's just an anonymous essay about a personal struggle over right and wrong, a personal struggle over good and evil. Most of the students in the class weren't able to complete the assignment. And the, the professor, he said, why? Why, why? why weren't you able to do this? It's, you know, it's an anonymous thing. It's, it's not like I'm going to know, you know, exactly who you are and what your struggle is. And, and they said, and apparently there was no irony in the response that they gave. They said, well, we haven't done anything wrong. How, how could I write about this personal struggle if I've never done anything wrong? Now, in that response, we see a lot of self-esteem. <laughs> you know, they think very highly of themselves, but there's very little self-awareness there. You know, the absence of the sense of a sense of sin there seems strange, especially when you consider that many of the students in that class had a religious upbringing. They, they were very familiar with Christianity. but yet they said, "I've never done anything wrong." That was the way that they responded to that essay or that assignment. John Piper, a, pastor in, or a former pastor in Minnesota, says it this way that I think is helpful. He says, "We find ways of avoiding the issue and softening the indictments and escaping the evidences of our sinfulness. And there are endless ways, it seems, to admit to a little bit of it while not being broken and humbled by it. But brokenness and humility are the gateway to paradise. Indeed, they are the road to paradise. In this life, we never outgrow our need for ever new experiences of brokenness and humility because of our sinfulness. So we have, these, we have people who are saying, I've never done anything wrong. And what I think Paul's getting at, what John Piper describes well there, is that we need to understand we're wrong if we're going to—that's the gateway to paradise, the road to paradise— so if you, if you couple that, if you couple the idea that people are not aware of their sin, I also want us to think about a survey that was done. And some things that uh, this survey, uh, what we learned from the survey, that was the purpose of it was to compare the lives of Christians and non-Christians. And here are some things that, that, that's, that they found out through doing the survey. We found out that Christians cuss less in public. Doesn't say anything about in private, but at least in public, uh, they cuss less. Uh, Christians give a little bit more to the poor. Christians are less likely to recycle. <laughs> I guess because we think it's all going to go away in one day anyway. So what's the point? Uh, Christians give more money to religious nonprofits. Christians on the whole, buy fewer lottery tickets. So that's good. Those are all great things that Christians do. That's what the survey found. We all, the survey also found, and this is where it gets interesting, that Christians are just as likely, To visit a pornographic website as those who are not. They're just as likely to get drunk. They're just as likely to do illegal drugs or take prescription medicines not prescribed to them. They're just as likely to be willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation. They're just as likely to have intentionally done something to get back at someone within the last 30 days they're just as likely to have said an unkind thing about someone behind their back in the last 30 days. So they're not all that different. So I think when you take these two stories together, we have people who with their Christian upbringing, who, are, when they're asked, just write about a struggle, they say, I can't do it. And then we have this survey that's saying, what's the difference between Christians and non-Christians? And the result is not really much all that different. You know, a few little things like buying lottery tickets, but by and large, there's not a whole lot of difference. And I think that's very indicative of our world today, where we're both resistant to being aware of and to acknowledging our sin, and the result of that is that our day-to-day lives are not all that different. We're basically the same as non-believers. And I think that that was very similar, probably manifests itself in different ways, but very similar to Paul's day when he's writing here um, in Romans 2. J.D. Greer, who's a pastor of a church in North Carolina, says it this way. He says that Paul's point in Romans 2 is that religion is often just a thin veneer papered over a heart that is still every bit as sinful as everyone else's. And that religion, the religion by itself is powerless to change our hearts. It might, it might change our behavior, but nothing deeper. And so for for that reason, for the things I've just talked about, that's why I've titled this sermon Leveling the Playing Field. Whether you're religious, irreligious, wherever you come from, we're all the same in our sin before God. There's no advantage in our sinfulness before God if we've grown up in the church. So let's dig in a little bit to what The Bible, the Word has for us. I will encourage you, I I won't reread things that Haley uh, read, but I will mention things. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, flip it back open there so you can follow when I'm referencing various verses there. Uh, But we're going to look starting in verse 12. Uh, That's where Clint left off in verse 11. And in verse 12, Paul is really starting this line of thought uh, that's really built on everything that Clint preached on last week. Um, so so keep that in mind, that Paul is building an argument. It's, very, it's not circular, it's very linear. He's driving to a point, and it's a, a point that I think is summarized in what J.D. Greer said earlier about religion being a thin veneer papered over a heart that's every bit as sinful. That's the point that Paul is driving towards as he starts in verse 12. Now he starts that verse with the word for, which means and shows us that it's connected to what he had just said. And so verse 11 is where it says, Paul shows no partiality, or or, sorry, not Paul, God shows no partiality. Maybe Paul doesn't either. Uh, God shows no partiality. Uh, God shows no favoritism. That's that's the point. And so Paul is now going to begin to explain what he means by that. Why is it that God shows no partiality? Why is it that God shows no favoritism? And I want to be clear here that he's talking about how God shows no partiality as it relates to Jews, between Jews and Gentiles, as it relates to how he views their sin. He doesn't view them any differently. He is not partial at all. That's the line of thinking that Paul is going to begin to explain. And there's really three sections here in these verses that we're going to look at. The first one is verses 12 to 16, where he's really showing there what I just said, that there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles as it relates to their sin. The second section is verses 17 to 24, where he's really going to say, you know, the Jews, you're really just hypocrites. You're really hypocrites. That's what he's going to talk about in 17 to 24. And then in verses 25 to 29, he's going to answer the question, who is a true Jew? Who is a true Jew? So those are the three sections that we're going to work through. We're just going to kind of take each one of them as they come. So in the first section, we see very early on here that there is no difference in not having the law and not obeying and having the law and sinning against the law. So it doesn't matter whether you heard the law growing up or you didn't have the law, there's no difference. Because he says in verse 13, it's not just the ones who hear the law that are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law that will be justified. We're going to come back to this point later on um, towards the end of the sermon. For now, though, I think it's just important to know that Paul is really, as I've said before, just leveling the playing field. Now, I will admit out of the gate, you may be a little confused. Jew, Gentile, what what exactly is is meant here? What's going on here? Now, while Paul, in this day, there were Jews and Gentiles, and even today there are Jews and Gentiles. It's, you know, those that are um, of, you know, uh, Jewish descent are Jews, and anyone else is a Gentile. That is the difference. Um, But I think for us in this day and age, it's a little bit harder to, what exactly does that mean? How do we apply that here? So I'll just say it this way, that a Jew in this sense, in this section, when I say that, is really anyone that is religious, um, anyone, maybe they grew up in the church, they're familiar with the Bible. Maybe they've memorized tons of Bible verses. Maybe they never missed a you know missed a Sunday growing up. Um, they go to church today. Those are the Jews in this sense. It's those that are religious people. And then the Gentiles would be kind of the opposite of that. Anyone who's irreligious, someone who's not familiar with the church at all, they don't have the word of God, they don't really understand anything about it, um, that, those would be who, who would be kind of captured by this group of Gentiles. So that's who, who Paul's writing to. They're real people that Paul's writing to, but for us, when we hear the word Jew here, think religious. When you hear the word Jew, think irreligious or, or don't care about, about the Bible. So, in this section, what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. We have people that are irreligious, so they're Gentiles, but they still do what the law requires. That's his point in verses 14 and 15. The law is written on the hearts of all people, whether they've read the law or not, whether they've heard the law or not, it is written on the hearts of people, um, including the Gentiles. It really ties back, I think, to what Paul has just described a few paragraphs earlier. If you, or if you think back to the sermon that Clint preached, not last week, but the one before that on the end of, of Romans chapter 1, uh, where we see in verse 19, talking about the Gentiles, those who don't have the law, it says that what can be known about God is plain to them. It says in verse 21 that they know God. These are irreligious people. They know God. And in verse 18, it says, men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So they know the truth enough to suppress it. So that's how Paul is describing Gentiles. And he's saying they, they have the law of God written on their hearts. And so that's how he answers the question, how can God be impartial in judging according to our deeds if the Jews have the law and the Gentiles don't? W- wouldn't that be unfair? But Paul's saying, no, it's, it's not unfair because the Gentiles do have the law. It's written on their hearts. All people have the law of God in their, uh, written on their hearts. They know God. They know right from wrong. I think we see this in our world in many, in many different ways. One of the clearest ways to me um, is if you take someone like um, Hitler or Osama bin Laden, and you go around and ask anybody, no one will say to you, you know what, they don't really de- deserve to be punished for what they did. That, that was fine. All, the, you know, all those people they killed— Not a big deal. Just let them go. They're fine. No, that's not the answer you're going to get. You're going to get that, no, those people deserve to be punished. It is not okay to hurt and kill people without being punished for it. And I believe the Bible speaks to the fact that those laws, the law about there will be a punishment for wrongdoing is written on their hearts. And so we all, Christian, non-Christian, religious, irreligious, believe in absolute truth just like that. Now, I will admit that, and the Bible will do this too, that in our sin, we will suppress that truth, which is why we don't just all live and which is why, you know, we can't say, well, Hitler never existed, because we do suppress that truth, uh, but it is written on our hearts, and it's written on our hearts, in such a, and, and, and our sin twists it. To when we become uncomfortable with that law, when, when maybe it kind of goes against something that we love, then we push it down and we suppress it and you, and you start to make excuses for it. He gets into that a little bit in verses 15 and 16. Um, but you know, you even take, even, we'll take that example of Hitler a little bit further and say, if you asked him if what he was doing was wrong back then, he probably would have said no. And so how, how does that happen? I think it happens because he suppressed the truth. That over his years, as he grew older, that that truth, that right and wrong of maybe I shouldn't hurt people, he began to twist it and he began to press, suppress it down because he thought, you know what? If I do this, I can be more powerful and I can have prestige in this, in this society that I'll create and I'll run and people will look to me and I'm going to be great. You know what? That's more important than doing the right thing. So I'm just going to push that truth away. I'm going I'm to push that down and twist it so that I can still do what I want to do and get what I want to do but that truth was still on his heart. And I think that's a little bit of what Paul means in verse 15 when he talks about conflicting thoughts, excusing or even excusing, accusing or even excusing them. That they have these thoughts, but they begin to push it down and then they begin to, they begin to say, well, you know what? It's really not all that bad. It's fine. And, and that over time, that battle stops because they've suppressed that truth so much. And so they go on living in sin, but that doesn't negate the fact that the law of God is still written on their heart, no matter how much they suppress it, no matter how much irreligious people suppress it, the law of God is still written on their hearts. And so that's why God is just in judging all people and whether or not they are doers of the law. So whether you have it in written form or not, it's still there, and you still can be judged by it. Um, I like the way that that, uh, that John Piper really summarized these few verses here. So I'm going to read a quote about what has been going on here in verses 11 to 15. And he says, first Paul says that there's no partiality with God. Then he defends this in verse 12 by saying God's judgment will fall according to how we respond to the measure of truth we have access to. Then he explains in verse 13 that the mere hearing of the law is no advantage to the Jew at the judgment day. And not hearing is no disadvantage to the Gentile because doing and not hearing is the issue. Then he explains in verses 14 and 15 that the law really is available to those who have no copy of the law of Moses because God has written it on the heart and given all of us a conscience to awaken us to this moral knowledge in our hearts. So in all this, he's really pointing that underneath the heart of the religious person is the very same corrupt heart that exists in Gentiles. It just might be a, a religified version of it, if you will. It's, we've kind of covered it with something, but at the heart, it's the same thing. And when you start to pull back those layers of religion, you're going to find that same corrupted mess in your own heart that you do in the heart of the Gentile or the irreligious person. So when he says that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus in verse 16— that should make us feel a little bit uneasy. Uh, it should be a little bit, I, I, I don't know about that, I don't like that, because when our hearts are revealed, we, we don't have anything to stand on. We, we've got nothing that we can say, like, well, at least I was religious, or at least I went to church a lot, it, it, at least I read the Bible some. That we, we can't stand on that, because at the core of it, as we peel back those layers, it's still the same corrupt heart. Like I mentioned earlier, he's leveling the playing field. No matter what you've done, you, you try to add these things yourself on top, but it doesn't matter. He's leveling the playing field. So the second section here uh, where he's talking about uh, what I've kind of titled or labeled that Jews are hypocrites. Um, this is, By the way, this is not anti-Semitic. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here, and hopefully you'll see that as we, um, as we get into this section. Uh, but in, in this section here, he's really going to pick on Jews in this scenario. But it, remember, like I said, it's really religious people. It's people that are just upholding the law and saying the law is all that matters. So he's going to pick on them a little bit. And the point of these verses is an argument that religious people, just like irreligious people, are sinners and in need of the gospel in spite of having so many many advantages and having the law. Even their higher standards of morality do not exclude them from their need to hear and believe the gospel. So I want to point out before we really get into the meat of this section that there is a piece of there, and maybe you heard it as Haley was reading, uh, where Paul is really calling and pointing to those that would teach, guide, and instruct others, but not apply those truths to themselves. He's he's wanting to warn those people. And so I want to call attention here in this room to anyone who is religious and who teaches. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is obvious. It's just Clint. He's the one that teaches. So this only applies to Clint and I can just check out. Or maybe it applies to me because I'm up here, but surely it doesn't apply to you. But I, want, I think it's broader. I think it's broader than just those that teach from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Uh, I think about our Sunday school teachers, you know, that are teaching our, our little kids uh, class or the Sunday school teachers. When we had the adult Sunday school class. Or the Bible study leaders, I know that on Wednesday nights, the, the women have been kind of trading off who teaches every week. This, this applies to you. Uh, this applies to the musicians who are up here on Sunday mornings who are teaching through the way they lead through the music. I think it applies there. Um, if you're a parent in here and you have a desire to teach your children the Word of God, I think this applies to you as well. I, really, I think this is anyone who wants to have or desires to have a personal ministry this warning can apply to you. And if you're a Christian, I hope you want to have a personal ministry, and so that should, this should apply to you. And so I just warn you along with Paul to be careful what you teach and how you teach, because the name of God may be blasphemed because of you. That's what verse 24 says. The name of God may be blasphemed because of you. So if you're not uncomfortable enough yet... <laughs> Let's continue to go deeper. Let's continue to look at our own heart. Um, I I do promise there is good news coming, so hang in there. But we have to continue this self-examination. I think the deeper we get here, the more glorious it's going to be on the other side. So we're going to take a little quiz, um, and you can can write down your answers if you want to. It's just a yes or no thing. You can think of them in your head. Whatever best helps you now, we're just going to take a quiz. And I've got about seven or so questions just to examine your own heart. Now, we're really going to take a few of, I'm going to do basically what Paul does here in these verses, but I'm going to make it apply a little bit more to our day and age, where we're going to look at different commandments and what those means, and you're either going to say like, yep, I do that, I follow that, or no, I don't. So, uh, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So, here's the question. Can you say, I've never put anything before God in my life? I've never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God. God has always been preeminent in my thoughts, affections, and actions. Worshiping him has always been the greatest passion of my life. Yes or no? Another one. You shall not take the the name of the Lord in vain. I have always held the name of God in highest respect, never uttering it carelessly. Nor have I ever desecrated God's name by calling myself his follower, yet not representing him well. The way I talk, act, spend money, and drive, give honor to the God whose name I attach to my life and whose bumper sticker I plaster on my car. Yes or no? Honor your parents. I have always respected and obeyed the authorities in my life and given them honor And willing obedience, whether or not they were watching. This includes my parents, my teachers, traffic cops, and the IRS. Yes or no? You shall not kill. I've never murdered anyone. Maybe you're all right there, but remember what Jesus did with his commandment. So you have to also be able to say, Nor have I had hateful thoughts. Nor have taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to another human being. I've never wished harm on anyone, even when they really angered me. Yes or no. Seventh commandment, you should not commit adultery. I've never had sex with anyone outside of the bonds of marriage, nor have I entertained sexual thoughts about someone that I'm not married to. Yes or no. You shall not steal. I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me. This includes downloading illegal music, cheating in school, or fudging on my taxes. I've always respected the belongings, rights, and creations of others, and been completely truthful and fair, taking only what I've earned. I've never taken extra Chick-fil-A sauce to stock my shelves at home. I've never wasted my company's time surfing the web, tweeting, or Facebooking. I've never taken credit that didn't belong to me, nor have I ever let others assume good things about me that weren't true. Yes or no? Only two more. Don't worry, we're getting to the end. I'm I'm sure you're not feeling great about yourself. You shall not lie. I've never bent the truth to get out of a bad situation. I've never stretched the truth to make myself look better, and I've never slandered anyone. I've always told the truth in every situation regarding every person I've ever known, and I've always fully fulfilled any promises I've made. Yes or no. And the last one, you shall not covet. I've never been greedy for something that wasn't mine, nor have I been jealous of the abilities, looks, position, or possessions of others. I've rejoiced with others in what they have, glad that they have it even when I don't. I've never complained about what God has provided for me and always been thankful and fully content with what I have and where I am in life. Yes or no? So you can trade papers with your neighbor and see how you did. You guys can grade each other. Uh, no, I'm, I'm assuming that if you're honest, there were a lot of no's there, probably all no's. But I don't, I don't want you to despair, but I do want you to know that you're far worse Than you ever imagined. I want to come back to the warning that I gave teachers a little earlier, and and just to say that the point is not that you can't be a teacher unless you answer yes to every question, but I think it's this: the point is that as a teacher, we need to be extremely clear to those that we are teaching that we're all wicked in our heart of hearts, that we're all in need of a savior, and just because we go to church, just because we have the law or read the the word that we're no better off than anyone else in this world. The playing field is level. And unfortunately, those things often, religion, those things we add on, they can make us smug or overly sensitive or judgmental or hypocritical or insecure. We'll we'll just take judging or judgmental there for a minute because Christians are often labeled as as judgmental. And I think it's due in large part to the fact that when we teach you know, we explain right from wrong without acknowledging our own wrongness, without acknowledging our own need uh, for a Savior. We teach maybe to feel better about ourselves. And instead, I think we need to teach and end every command with the way that John does in First John 1, where he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Or even how Paul finishes this section here to say, it's not about adherence to the law, but it's about a heart change. We are worse than we ever imagined, but we are also far more loved than we ever dare dream. So this third and and final section here is, we're going to ask the question or answer the question, who is a true Jew? Now that may be kind of a funny question uh, to ask, and a we- weird you may not have ever thought to ask that question, and you may not have cared. Uh, but it really comes from verses 28 and 29. Now, I know I said earlier that any time Paul referenced the word Jew, uh, in this section, he really means just a religious person. Uh, but I think here, and the, this is an exception in verses 28 and 29, where he really is talking about God's people. So when we ask the question, who is a tr- true Jew? We're asking, who truly is? are God's people? Who is someone that is, a, uh, that is one of God's people? And I, I think this is something that, that we should say, like, I, I want to know the answer to that because I want to be one of God's people. <laughs> um, and so I think in this sense, you know, a Jew is one that can claim the promises of God. It's one that can, be claim, that can claim to be one that is chosen by God. So who are these true Jews that Paul's talking about here? How, how can you and I I think most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles, technically, ethnically. um, But how can you and I be Jews, even though we are Gentiles? And I think he says it plainly in verses 28 and 29. And I'll just put it this way, that you're not a Jew by just doing the religious things that Jews do. You're not a Jew just by following the law of God. Whether or not you are a true Jew, comes down to the heart. Has your heart been transformed? It's all about the internal rather than the external. We've seen it many ways in this section, and Paul continues to hammer this point home that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes uncircumcised Gentiles into circumcised Jews, namely by circumcising the heart. So the circumcision is a very external thing. It's an outward action that you can do. And what Paul is saying here is the Holy Spirit does the internal action, so whatever is on the outside doesn't matter. It's not important. What makes you a Jew is what happens on the inside. It's what happens internally as opposed to externally. So Paul is continuing to point out here that there are many people who do all the right things externally, externally but their lives don't reflect the reality that they have a new heart and have been changed from the inside out. You've, if you've grown up in the church, if you've been around the church for a long time, you might be able to even think of people like this. It's like, oh yeah, that person, you know, they, they read their Bible a ton, or they, they showed up here every Sunday. They were always dressed really nice. Uh, but, but then when you look at their life outside of church, there's no evidence of a changed heart. Maybe they did the right things when they were here, um, and are in certain circumstances, but internally they were a mess. Internally, their sin ruled their life, and they wanted nothing to do with Christ. They just wanted—they wanted things to do with the law. That's what they were after. So I ask you: Does your life show evidence of a changed heart? Would your best friend be able to come up here today and testify that your life outside of this building, that your life outside of church? really gives evidence that you live a changed life. Would somebody be able to look at your life and, and that knows you really well and say, that person's different, not just because they follow a lot of rules, but that person's different because their life has been changed from the inside. You know, it's very easy to grow up around the church and be told all the right things but not have a changed heart. And I think Tim Keller, who's a pastor of a church in New York, says it this way. Um, he says, it's possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. And this can happen in conservative evangelical churches. Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to but do not make any internal difference. There's an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution. I think that's what Paul's afraid of. That's what I'm warning you of today, because it's so easy in the church to just intellectually grasp the gospel, but to not have a changed life. It's easy to just make it a mental ascent. Well, I don't really believe in anything else, so yeah, I guess I believe in Christianity. And it's just, it's all mental, but there's no heart change there. I heard a great story about um, Dr. Christian Bernard. He's the first doctor to ever perform um, a heart transplant. Um, the story is about the second person that he gave a heart transplant to. Uh, the, the patient woke up after having the surgery, um, and, and Dr. Christian Bernard was there. And, uh, and the patient said, do you have my heart? Can, can I see my heart? And a little bit of a weird, um, weird request. Uh, but the doctor said, well, yeah, actually I do. It's in a jar over here on the table here. And he said, well, can, can I see it? And so uh, Dr. Bernard went over and grabbed the jar and handed it to the patient. And the patient just kind of looked at it for a second. And he said, so this is what was giving me all that trouble, huh? And then he handed it back to him as if to say, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And I think that's a great picture of the Christian life, is that we look at our sinful heart, we look at it that it's has been giving us so much trouble, and you say, you know what, I, I don't want this anymore. I, I, don't, I don't want this to be a part of my life anymore. It's not that we say, well, I'm going to stop doing X and start doing Y, and that's going to make me right before God. No, it's, it's that we say, I don't want this heart anymore. I want, I want to be done. I want to be changed from the inside out. John Owen, who's an old theologian, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, he says that we ought to treat sin like an intruder in our home. So when an intruder comes in your home, you don't invite them in and say, let's sit down, let's have coffee together and catch up. You don't do any of that. You call 911, you get your kids out of the house, you run away, you go as far away from that intruder as you can because you want to save your life. And I think that's the way we're called as believers to look at sin. So all those things that I read earlier, the, the yes or no questions that you examine your life on, those areas where you may be answered yes, are you seeking to run away from those things? Are you just saying, well, you know what? It's not really that big a deal. Everybody kind of does it. What, you know, who, who really cares? or are you seeking to say I don't want that anymore. That's causing me trouble. I, I want to be done with that. Now I promise that that I'll get back to verse 13 and and this is where we're going to end when it says that it's doers of the law that will be justified. And justified is really just another way of saying that being in right standing before God. Now that may be a little bit confusing because you may think, if you've been listening, like, that kind of contradicts everything you just said. Um, and, and so, what, how, how, why does Paul say that? How, I mean, this is the Word of God, right? And there's nothing that contradicts. So, how do these two things work together that we can say, it's all about internal, but the doers of the law are the ones that are justified, And I think when I initially read this, I thought that maybe it was more of a hypothetical, that Paul's just saying, like, it's doers of the law that can be justified, but really nobody can do the law, so nobody's justified, so you really need to look to Christ and not yourself, and that's really what, you know, that's the point Paul's making here. However, um, I don't really think that's right. Uh, The more I read about this, um, I, I think the point that Paul's making is he really is saying the doers of the law will be justified. But to understand what that means, I think we have to understand what a doer of the law is. I don't think it's one that obeys the laws of God perfectly. I don't think it's one that says yes to every question that I asked earlier, because that is impossible. And so if that were the case, then Paul would say we would have to conclude no one can be justified, but that goes against the rest of the Bible. So that can't be what a doer of the law is. I I, I don't, and it also doesn't say that the doing of the law is what makes you justified. It just says that a characteristic of one who is justified is that they are a doer of the law. So it's been said this way that when Christ comes into a person's life by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in the gospel, that person becomes a doer of the law, not a sinlessly perfect lawkeeper, but one who loves the law of God or the law of Christ, and depends on God's help to live according to the truth, which now includes the cross of Christ and the work of the Spirit, and trusts God for his mercy when he stumbles. That, that's what a doer of the law is. Not one who looks to themselves and said, I can do this. I'm going to do the law and be a doer of the law. But it's one who says, you know what? My heart is wicked. I could never do the law. Christ came. He lived the perfect life for me. And he died the death that I deserve for my disobedience. So I'm going to trust him. And in that trusting him, God will change your heart, as we talked about earlier. And therefore, you will become a doer of the law. Again, that doesn't mean that you obey perfectly. But it means that your heart is transformed and you obey, not in order to get God's approval, but because of what God has done. So I ask that question, are you a doer of the law? Are you one who obeys um, so that you'll be accepted by God? Or are you one who obeys because you already have been accepted by God when you put your trust in the death of Christ? If If you say you're a Christian, does your life really reflect that truth? Are you just doing the law and trusting Christianity without trusting Christ? Have you embraced the gospel in your heart? not have you been baptized, not have you prayed a prayer, not do you have a perfect attendance at church, but have you embraced the gospel in your heart? I've heard it said that many times the gospel can be missed by 18 inches, the 18 inches between your head and your heart, that we know it up here, but it doesn't make its way down to its heart, and I don't want that to be you. So I want you to look to Christ. I ask you to look to Christ I ask you to look to all that his death accomplished for you in paying the penalty that you deserve. And I ask you to, by grace, embrace him. Don't, don't embrace religion. Don't embrace the law, but embrace Christ. Let's pray. Um, God, we know we're, we're here in a church. Uh, so many of us, if not all of us, would be considered religious. Uh, we we have the law, we heard the law, but we also heard in, in verse 13 that it's not the hearers of the law that are justified, but the doers. So God, I ask by your grace that you would make us all doers of the law, that we would trust in Christ, that we would trust in what he did for us, and that you would give us new hearts, that we would be changed from the inside out, um, God, and, and that that would then impact those around us, that they could see a changed life and realize that Christianity is not just about cleaning your life up. It's not just about getting religious, um, but it's about a a changed heart. It's about a heart that trusts in the gospel. Uh, So God, I pray that you would do that work in Jesus' name. Amen.